0: Good morning, and welcome to the Houghton Wesleyan Church. It's a blessing to be here with you this morning, and we can celebrate this morning the beautiful weather. I wish it would warm up a little bit. <laughs> um, please stand for the call to worship. Let us sing of the Lord's great love forever. Let us declare that God's love stands forever. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Love and faithfulness go before him. Please pray with me. Dear Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Help us to have open minds and open hearts to receive what you would have us here this morning. Help us be present and give us peace. In the Lord's name we pray. Amen.
1: great promise to us as uh, we gather for worship. What a friend is Jesus. We're so glad that you are here and uh, those of you who may be joining us in streaming, we're glad you're with us in worship today as well. I want to invite you to uh, share a word of greeting with one another. Maybe we'll extend that time a little bit, perhaps introduce yourself to someone that uh, you may not know as we share in the fellowship of Christ in worship today. like fun, doesn't it? Yeah. So this Wednesday night at 615 uh, is our um, annual uh, races and memory of Buddy Keith, who was so instrumental in helping the kids through the years uh, build their boats and cut, build their cars and cut out the boats and just a big part of the participation of that. And uh, some of his family will be here. They've donated prizes. They're going to be here a part of it. And uh, we'll have activities, a nursery, activities for younger children, And even if you don't have children who would be competing, it's a great opportunity to support them and to come. And I I didn't verify this, but I'm going to guess there's be some food here. But, you know, if there's not, that's my fault for telling you that. But I'm pretty sure we'll get some. But uh, we just want you to be a part of this uh, Wednesday night in the community room beginning at 6.15. A couple of other things to note is an insert in your bulletin about the new directory we're in the process of putting together. Uh, We're taking pictures Uh, Starting a week and a half or so from now But you can sign up now if you'd like Uh, As I understand it And if I'm wrong Then I'll I'll tell you next week But if I understand it If you had a picture in the last directory You don't have to get a new picture To be in this current directory But if you would like a new picture Maybe either you're new to uh, to the church Or maybe your family's dynamics have changed And you'd like a new picture Then uh, we're taking pictures For anybody who would like them And then they'll put those together So uh, you can sign up actually after the service in the back foyer. Uh, there's someone to help you as well as anytime you go through the church website and sign up online. And the other thing is, remember, next Sunday is a time change. Uh, daylight saving time begins. And so if you don't change your clock, you'll be late for everything next week, uh, next Sunday. So I just want to remind you of that as uh, you get ready for coming for worship on uh, next Sunday.
2: We have one more thing from our Missions Month last month that we just didn't have time in all our services to uh, do something that I think is quite significant. You'll notice the insert in your bulletin. Were there enough inserts today? Um, There's one special one, Thanksgiving for Kingdom Service. And I want to make sure you take that home and don't leave it for the folks to clean up the pews to pick them up. These are for you to take home and read, so we won't take too much time today. We want to take a few minutes to recognize and say special thanks to... Three outstanding couples with long-standing roots to Houghton, to Houghton Church, to this community. And uh, they've been serving the Lord for, this is fun to say, a half century uh, of service. And uh, in the earlier services, we honored the Hesses. Second service, we honored the Millers, who are here this one, and this time uh, the Shays. Listen to the list of kind of things those three couples did. You'll think it's ten couples. Uh, church planting, literature, pastoral professional and leadership training, North American mobilization, Bible translation, language uh, and language development, radio engineering and management, nursing, health services, discipleship, and major field and international leadership. I'm out of breath. What a list. But also what amazing people these have been and are. (laughs) Have been. How about that? We're not sure how many churches in North America or anywhere in the world can actually claim that as part of our fellowship are these three couples who've served so long for the Lord's work. Today, in this service, talking about John and Pat Shea, who have labored for the Lord in Liberia, in Cote d'Ivoire, and in the West African region, and also at the international headquarters of SIM, which, he corrects me, it's in South Carolina, not North Carolina. It's right on the border where that theme park is. Anyway, somewhere there. Uh, and they've served uh, both in professional and leadership roles with SIM Mission. Their children continue to follow in their full step, foot, footsteps in full-time missionary work. And it's certainly been a privilege, especially for us as Shea family, to have you here in Houghton this year. Wes? Well, we do want to thank you
1: so much for your and And we just are excited to have a role to play in supporting you through the years and being a part of that. And so... We have a, a copy of the insert in color for you as a keepsake and also uh, a, a, a plaque uh, that has a, a map of the world and Africa is highlighted. And it's uh, First Chronicles 16.24. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And it's just uh, as, a, as a symbol of our appreciation and of your inspiration to us and the work that you've done for the kingdom of God through the years. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank, you. Thank, you. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, Your support to people who are support missionaries is important. I used to say something like the military took 17 people in the background to keep one infantryman going. Of course, now there aren't so many infantrymen, but that's not the way it is in missions. There are plenty of them, and they need help to manage. They need things taken care of so they can get on with what they are here to do. This church recognizes that. I think it takes the same kind of thing to run a college. So you all are familiar with that. And we want to thank you particularly for continuing to support us through many years. Pat, you want to make a comment? I'd like to share with you the verse that meant an awful lot to us as we were in Liberia's Civil War, evacuated twice. Genesis twenty eight, fifteen became very precious to us and to our Liberian co workers. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go and bring you back to this land. I'll not leave you until I've done what I promised you. Genesis twenty-eight fifteen. I want to assure you that during our hundred years, we did take some time out to sleep.
0: The Old Testament scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. As the ushers come forward, please stand for the singing of the doxology. Dear Lord, bless our gifts this morning. Help us to give as you have given to us. In the Lord's name we pray, amen.
4: Thank
1: you so much, Dan. It reminds us that just God loves all things that are beautiful. All things that inspire us in the various ways in which they come to us. And the God who loves things that are beautiful, the God who creates things of great beauty, is the God who loves us and cares for us. And because of his great love for us, he invites us to, to confess to him the burdens, the sins, the struggles of our lives, and in doing so, we know that he hears us and that he works in our lives. So join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin as we pray together. Eternal God, our judge and redeemer, we confess that we have tried to hide from you, for we have done wrong. We have lived for ourselves and apart from you. We have turned from our neighbors and refused to bear the burdens of others. We have ignored the pain of the world and passed by the hungry, the poor, and the oppressed. In your great mercy, forgive our sins and free us from selfishness, that we may choose your will and obey your commandments through Jesus Christ our Savior. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all of the ways in which you are at work in our lives and in this world. We thank you that when we confess our sins to you, you do not condemn us, but in your grace you forgive us, and you restore us, and you redeem us, and you set us on to a path of healing and a path of life. As we gather this morning, we represent many burdens and concerns in our own lives, in the lives of those we love, in this community, in this world. Father, we pray for all who are grieving today. Grief comes to us in a variety of ways. And grief lingers in us. We pray for your comforting presence upon all who are grieving. We pray for your healing grace upon all who are struggling with issues of health and pain. We pray especially for Storer Emmett, Ken Stonemetz, Ben King, Doris Seppian, Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson, Laurel Bucher, for Bill Gedeon, Warren, Ella Woolsey, Phil Muker For Mike Raybuck and Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, and for Linda Roth, Dick Gould, Emily Cricklar, and others who are on our minds today. We pray, Father, for the ministries of this church, and we thank you for all who give of time and energy and resources to allow us to do the ministry of the church. And we pray for churches around us. We pray today for the Wellsville Bible Church and Pastor Kenyon. We pray that you would pour out your spirit upon this gathering of believers that even in worship today they would sense you present and that you would stir them to love for each other and to love for Wellsville and beyond as they bear witness to you. And Father, we think of, of our world. Think of refugees who have been forced from their homes most of the time by no fault of their own. But because of war and Persecution and opposition are forced to flee the place of home and security to a place that is unknown and insecure. We do thank you for those in Iraq who have, uh, Christians who have been able to return from refugee camps. Some of them are finding home to be as they left it, others have come home to destruction and despair. In each case, minister your grace to them and give them the ability to bear witness to you. We pray, Father, for people who have heard your call to serve in places that are not their home. We thank you especially today for the Hesses and the Millers and the Shays who represent many years of faithful ministry. We thank you for the fruit that has come from their service. And for all of the ways in which you have worked in their lives and in the lives of others through them. May that fruit continue to grow and widen and be transformational. For people and countries and the whole world. Father, we thank you for hearing our prayers. On this first Sunday of Lent, as we contemplate again the cross, we give thanks to you for Jesus. It's in his name that we offer our prayers. Remembering the prayer he taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
5: How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all men. That he should give his only son To make a wretch his treasure How great the pain of searing loss The Father turns his face away As wounds which mar the chosen one Bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulder. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers it was his love that held him there until it was accomplished his dying breath has brought me life I know that Power. have paid my ransom, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom.
0: The New Testament scripture reading is First Corinthians 1. Verses 18 through 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Please be seated. One of the things that I think isn't common for all of us is that we like to be right. Am I right? I'm right, right? Yeah, of course want to be right. But even more than that, not only do we want to be right, we want people to know we're right. You get in a conversation with someone, uh, we want them not just to we don't want just, just press the point that we're right, but we want everyone to know we're right. And it's difficult for us in a situation, a setting where we know we are right, we know we are following the right person, we know we have the right ideology, the right theology, the right philosophy. Uh, we know that we're right about whatever the disagreement is, and we, it's hard for us not to make sure everyone in the room understands that we have it right. It's, it's just a part of our human nature. And in some ways, there's nothing wrong with that. In other ways, there is this underlying sense of, I mean, the word that comes to my mind is arrogance. Arrogance about making sure people know we're right. There's something, what we're in essence saying a lot of the times is something about me is better than something about you. The way I think is better than the way you think. The person I follow is better than the person you follow. The ideology or theology or philosophy I have is better than what you have. And, and there is this underlying sense of our struggle with being arrogant about being right. Right? It doesn't mean that we're not right. It is just something about the spirit, the attitude in which we approach it. And this is not a new problem. This is not something human beings just started uh, dealing with in the last 10, 15, 200 years. This is something that goes all the way back to the as, as beginning of when human beings first sinned. And we see it in the New Testament. As, as Paul begins to write this letter to the church at Corinth. The passage we read begins at verse 18, but beginning at verse 10, before that, Paul jumps right into the issue that seems to, be, uh, seems to have, have inspired him to write this letter. He says, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels. Some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul, I'm a follower of Apollos, I follow Peter, I follow only Christ. Now, when I read that, as the, I mean, you know, he's, the first nine verses are, I love you, I, I give thanks to you, God for you, you know, the typical introduction that Paul gives, and then he gets right to it. And, and it strikes me that if Paul comes to that issue so quickly, I wonder if the whole rest of the letter is in one way or another addressing that problem. He writes a lot of things in this letter. He he writes about worship. He writes about uh, the the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. He he writes about love, the 13th chapter, the famous chapter. He writes about spiritual gifts. He writes about how the body and how we're connected to each other. He writes about speaking in tongues. He writes this great chapter about the, the resurrection. But all of those things, it seems to me, in one way or another, keep addressing this issue of unity or better disunity among the people. And when they, when the argument is, I follow Peter or Paul or Apollos or, you know what, I don't mess with those guys. I just follow Jesus. There is this underlying sense of arrogance that I know more than you do. I'm better than you are. If you could just see things the way I see, then your life would be great. Great. What intrigues me about this is that when after Paul introduces the problem, the very first thing he comes to, the very first solution he addresses with them is to take them to the cross. Now, he says the cross is foolishness to a lot of people. People who don't understand it look at the cross and think that's the craziest thing in the world. Now, for us... 2,000 years later, the cross has become something that we, we uh, look at as, as, a, as a positive thing. Now, you know, we think about the cross and, and we lament the pain that Jesus endured. But for us, this is a positive symbol. We sing about things like the power of the cross. But in first century Palestine, it would not have been viewed that way it was it was it was a picture of execution. This is something that people who who didn 't know how to live in the world right faced. This is for criminals this is for this is for people who commit treason this is for heretics. If we were to put it into modern contact, maybe instead of having a cross here, maybe we 'd have an electric chair or gas chamber or gallows things that that are that bring about images of shame for us, and so for them, Paul says, "You know, I recognize that the cross that we look to as this as this awesome event is foolishness to a lot of people, and and to the Jews, in the book of Deuteronomy, it talks about how anyone who hangs on a tree is is obviously cursed of God. Anyone who's been executed like that, and if you leave that person hanging too long." It, it brings the curse onto the whole community. Paul understands the foolishness of the cross. Because for years, until he met Jesus, he persecuted Christians. And, and it's not because Paul was evil. It's just because Paul could not quite reconcile in his mind that, that people who followed someone who died like that could ever claim that that this person was blessed by God. This is identifying that person as being cursed by God. And so people who claim to follow this person and that it leads them to God are either heretics or crazy or both. It's foolishness. And for the Gentiles, for the Greeks who who, uh, value wisdom so highly, for them it's all about what you know. And how you can communicate what you know. And as long as you know the right things, then you're good. And Paul is not disparaging knowledge. He talks often about how how helpful and important knowledge is. But when knowledge is what we worship, the cross looks foolish to us. Because that's not how things get done in this world. That's not how things operate. That's not the position of power and strength that that moves the world. And so he says it's foolishness to people who don't understand. It's a stumbling block. Think about the various religions of the world and the symbols that uh, that they use. Philip Yancey was, writes in one of his books about being in, at that time it was Bombay, now it's Mumbai, India. And uh, this place where he said basically the four great... The four largest religions of the world tend to operate in pretty peacefully. He said he was out for a walk one day and he he said, wherever you go in that city, you see images of of Hinduism, not just the temples, but even like vendor carts, all of the painted gods and the images. It's just so prevalent everywhere. And these are the images that that Hindus look at as "This this is triggers our faith. And he said, as I walked, I came across a mosque, which is obviously very different from the Hindu temples. They have no images. They simply have a spire on top, a a minaret that reaches into the heavens to about the one God, Allah. And as he continued his walk, he came across a Buddhist center. And and there he walked in and the the aroma of incense and the, the monks in their saffron robes, trying their best, sitting in front of the Buddha to empty their minds of every thought. And the Buddha was the representation of their faith. And eventually he came to a Christian church. He said it probably resembled the mosque more than any of the others, but the one difference, they had a spire, the one difference was at the top of the spire was a cross. He said, you know, he grew up with the cross. But for some reason in that setting, viewing all of those other images, all of a sudden he began to realize how Foolish that the cross looks to everybody else. How different the cross is to people who don't understand it. Because the cross represents not power, but weakness. The cross represents vulnerability. The cross represents death, torture, pain, loss, despair. Despair. Why in the world would people make that their primary symbol? We've gotten so used to it that it just makes sense to us. But when you pull back and you stop and think about it, it looks kind of crazy. But Paul says what looks foolish and weak to the world is really the means through which God exercises his power and his wisdom. Because the power of the cross is not in, in the pa- kind of power that we, that we see in our world that we think moves the world. The, the power of the cross is in Jesus' willingness to surrender and to give his life. There are some people who want to simply say, let's remove the cross from this whole discussion. Let's not worry about the cross, the Jesus of Calvary. That's too hard to understand. Let's just focus on the teachings of Jesus. That's good enough. But if you take, if you remove the cross from the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus really become nonsensical. I mean, if you don't have the cross, why in the world would you think that blessing comes from being poor in spirit or being meek? And humble? Why would we think without the cross, why would we think that the blessing comes from, from being merciful instead of being vindictive? Why would we think without the cross, why would we think that, that the that the way to life is in giving up instead of grasping? In letting go instead of hoarding? Why would we ever think that blessing could come from being persecuted? If without the cross, turning the other cheek makes no sense. going the extra mile makes no sense. it, it makes no sense without the cross. You put it into the concept of, of how all the other gods of the world are viewed and and, and you realize that in many ways that the whole point in, in most of the other the other religions of the world and how they view their gods is that to be a God means you don't have to mess with human stuff. That's the whole point of being God. You don't have to do that. That's the perk of being God. It's like being a parent. You know, the whole point of being a parent is you get to tell your kids what to do. You get to control them, right? I mean, that's what we do this for, isn't it? You got to have some kind of perk about being God. And the perk of being God is that I get to do what I want. I don't have to mess with all this human stuff. I I distance myself from it. I'm completely away from it. That's what you keep seeing over and over again as you read about all the other gods of the world, except for ours. And the image of our God is not a God who distances himself from the world, but a God who walks right into the world. Sometimes I've, I've wondered about, you know, when Jesus... When Jesus, after the resurrection and the ascension, the world, quite frankly, doesn't look all that much different than when he came. And I'd like to think that Jesus cleaned up everything, and he perfected everything, and it's all good, and now we see the difference. But he doesn't, and I think that's because Jesus doesn't come to perfect the world. Jesus comes to step into the mess of the world to heal it, and to restore it, and to redeem it. And to offer a way for us to have life. And it comes back to the cross. Not only does Jesus' life make no sense if you remove the cross. The reality is, when you think about how Jesus lives his life and what he teaches, really the most natural place that he's going to end up is a cross. If people around Jesus are really listening to what he's saying and watching what he's doing, they have to be stepping back and thinking, Jesus, are you really want to do this? That's not going to end well. You need to back off a little bit on what you're saying to the the Pharisees. They have power. You need to just be a little softer with, with Herod. Don't hang out with those kinds of people. That's not going to get you where you want to be if you If people really were able to see and understand what Jesus was doing and what he was saying and, and what is what his word was really if you if you think about it it 's going to end up in something that looks like a cross because jesus whole life, even though he had all the power in existence, he let go of it and the startling thing about pondering that is that if that's the way Jesus' life is headed, then what does that say about those of us who are disciples of that same Jesus? And the direction of our lives and the call of our lives. If you're like me, I, I, want, to, I want to try to embrace the cross without embracing the kind of life that the cross demands. As much as I hear the gospel, as much as I hear Jesus saying, as much as I hear the writers of Scripture saying and, the, and the people through the ages saying that the way of life is the way of the cross, I keep thinking, surely there's a different way. But there's not. And that has something to say with about our relationships, just as it does the relationships of the people in Corinth. As you think about your relationships, particularly relationships that might have some cracks in them, what's the spirit and the attitude in which we are addressing them? Now, Paul's not saying that, that we can't be Say we're right. Paul's not saying that that we can't we can't disagree. He's not saying that that we can't have different opinions about things because we do. In fact, I, I'm convinced that one of the one of the primary ways we learn is through disagreeing with people, and 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 discussing things with people, maybe even arguing at times with people, because that that's how new ideas start getting into our minds. It's a good thing, but the the point he's making is what's the attitude, what's the spirit in which we come to those disagreements and those differences of opinion? Do we come to them in a spirit of arrogance or humility? Do we come to them in a spirit that that is like wisdom and power or something that looks foolish and vulnerable? like a cross do we approach our relationships thinking I have to win or do we approach our relationships with I want to love and it doesn't mean we're not right there's a good chance we are right and we can and we can talk about our opinions and our thoughts and our perspectives and how we view things. It's the spirit in which we do it. I don't think there's anything wrong in the church in Corinth with some of the people feeling more connected to Paul or to Peter or to Apollos. The problem was they were saying, because I follow Apollos, you're wrong. Because I connect with Peter, you're wrong. And you're less than me. And that spirit, that attitude that doesn't look anything like the cross was tearing the church apart. And it will us too. I saw an article this week that, that the, the title grabbed me. The article was fine, but it was really the title that grabbed me. It, it, the title was, Lent is Back to Mess Up Our Lives Once Again. There's something about that that rings true. The season of the year when we focus more than ever on the cross and the call of the cross to vulnerability and looking foolish because we love and we care about people. We don't have to always be thinking about ourselves and we give of our resources and we love one another. And we surrender to Christ. That's the call of the cross. And during the season of Lent, we are especially thinking about it. Not because that's the only time we should, but because it is a time when our focus tends to get directed there. And I, find, I think there could be huge value to us personally, to us corporately. To hear the words of Paul saying, You know what? If you look foolish, that's okay. So did Jesus. Father, thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. Thank you that your love leads us to the cross. Give us grace to embrace the message of the cross. And in so doing, bring healing to us in every way that we need it. That we may bear witness of you to one another and to the whole world. Christ, we pray. Amen. receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord make his, turn his countenance upon you and give you peace.